following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. This summer we enjoyed even more than we ever have before having teenagers in our household. We have three teenage boys. Um, 18, 16, and our youngest turns 14 this coming Friday. And for those of you who have younger kids and are looking ahead at the teenage years in fear and trepidation, can I tell you, it's so much fun. It really is. It's really been neat. And one of the things that I loved this last summer was the music selection that our teenage boys offered during summer holidays. So one of the beauty of, beauties of you know, modern cars and stereo systems is Bluetooth, and so the kids can take it over with their phones and basically be the DJ while you're driving on summer holiday. And what I'm especially enjoying about our older two boys, 18 and 16, is the eclectic music um, choices that they have. So they love a lot of the modern music and stuff, the modern rock stuff, love some of the hip-hop stuff. So we're getting all this kind of stuff coming through the stereo while we're driving on holiday. But then mixed into that, our two oldest boys have discovered 80s rock, which is what I grew up with when I was their age. So you get this fabulous sense of music as we're driving along, going on holiday. We get a bit of Imagine Dragons, and some of you are looking at me like you have no idea what that is, but it's a band, Imagine Dragons, and then that finishes, and all of a sudden we're singing along to Queen or Billy Joel or something like this. And it's this wonderful eclectic mix of music. And into that eclectic mix this summer, Logan, who is our 16-year-old, he was 15 at that point, added in a whole new genre. Logan is learning and doing really well at electric guitar. And so he goes searching for music that has a lot of electric guitar, strong, you know, music through it. And he recently discovered, right before our July holidays, he discovered this genre of music called the blues. And so we're ripping along on summer holiday, getting Imagine Dragons and Billy Joel, this weird, bizarre mix of hip-hop and everything with a bit of BB King and this kind of stuff. And it was really fun to listen to him discover this whole music genre that he never knew existed and to fall in love with it and to be playing it along with everything else that he listens to. Right, singing the blues. This is the way the Oxford Dictionary defines the blues. Number one, it's a melancholic music of black American folk origin, typically in a 12-bar sequence, for those of you who are musical, that gave rise to rhythm and blues and rock and roll. Secondly, it's feelings of melancholy, sadness, or depression. Now, I don't know which came first. I don't know whether the music started and was called the blues, and then someone went, you know what, that sums up how I feel a lot of the time or whether that feeling of melancholy and sadness, you know, the having the blues is what someone coined that feeling, and then they said, hey, this music kind of sums that up. I don't know which came first, which was the chicken or which was the egg, but the reality is if you've lived for any significant length of time in this fallen world, you've sung the blues, I would guess. My guess is if you've lived in this, on this planet for long enough in this beautiful creation that God has made that is now cursed and marred by our sin and our rebellion against God, you know what it's like to sing the blues. Whether you've experienced or are experiencing right now conflict with people who are significant relationally in your life, whether it's financial pressure as 
you face redundancy or a small business that's struggling to make ends meet, whether it's a health struggle that you personally have had to live with and endure year upon year, or it's someone close to you who's just received the diagnosis out of the blue, whether it's a marriage that's really struggling or even fallen apart, whether it's a teenager who's gone wayward, whether it's a parent that is aging in some really sad ways, and the list could go on, couldn't it? Have I made you a little depressed yet? Because the truth of the matter is that's life in a fallen world, eh? Not all the time. Not every moment. We have seasons in our lives of joy and festivity and laughter. But we also have seasons of life that are really hard. That's true of us personally in our own lives. That's true of us in our families that we are part of. That's true of us as we walk through life with our friends. That's even true of us as a church family, isn't it? In fact, in talking to Reuben, I would say that as a church family, you right now have been through a hard season. He was telling me about the two deaths that you have had to endure as a church family over these last six months. In fact, I was with some of your leaders just recently at a conference in Wellington when the news came through that Ollie had passed away. And it was actually an amazing privilege for me to find the team from Shore up in a room in this church. We were at this conference in Wellington when they'd first heard the news and they were sitting on the floor in a circle weeping together and praying. And I actually had the real privilege of sitting with them for a few minutes in that circle and weeping with them and praying for them and for you as a church. Because these are the seasons of life we go through. And life isn't always wonderful. Life doesn't always go to script. Life doesn't always turn out the way we had planned. We don't have 100% of our prayers always answered. That's what life is about. The question, though, is what do we do when life is like that? How do we handle it when life hasn't gone right, when it hasn't followed the script we had been hoping for, when God hasn't come through the way we wanted, when God maybe hasn't answered our prayers? How do we sing the blues well? How do we sing the blues biblically? How do we sing the blues in a way that glorifies God? How do we get through those seasons of life? My belief is that as a church, big church, generally, we do a poor job of talking about these kinds of things. And I don't think we always equip God's people to really understand how to walk through the tragedies and difficulties of life. And I think that is in and of itself tragic. And so today, I'd like to walk us through that, uh, through these particular Psalms, Psalms 42 and 43. So if you've got a Bible, I'd dearly love you to turn there. Whether it's a paper Bible, whether that's you want to pull your phone out and pull up an app, whether you've got an uh, iPad with you or something else. But I'd love to look with you for a few minutes at these two Psalms, Psalms 42 and 43. Actually, these two Psalms were once one Psalm. Most scholars believe that they were actually originally one psalm for a number of reasons. One, there is a common refrain or a common chorus. We're going to come to this a little bit later, but if you've got your Bible there, if you have a look at Psalm 42 verse 5, it says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. 
Now, if you've got it there, drop your eyes down to verse 11 of Psalm 42, and you'll notice it's exactly the same as verse 5. And you go to verse 5 of Psalm 43, it's exactly the same line again. It's kind of like the chorus of a praise song, where there's three stanzas and a chorus that repeats three times. And because it repeats both in Psalm 42 and 43, many scholars, not all, but many scholars believe it was probably originally one psalm. Also, the language is similar. In fact, verse 9 of Psalm 42 is virtually the same, not quite, but virtually the same as Psalm 43, verse 2. Um, In many manuscripts of the ancient Hebrew manuscripts that we have, they're actually together as one psalm as well, which is another indication. And in a place in the book of Psalms where many of the psalms do have headings, Psalm 43 doesn't, as though it flows straight on from Psalm 42. So my feeling is this is originally one psalm that we're looking at today. And it's a psalm that is part of a bigger collection of psalms called the Lament Psalms. Now you're in this little series at the moment, And I don't know exactly how Reuben set this up, so let me um, just set it up, and this might be repetitious for you. But scholars categorized the Psalms in the book of Psalms in a few different categories. There's some small ones, but there's two major categories. There's praise Psalms and lament Psalms. Praise Psalms, they're the Psalms that worship God and praise God for who he is and what he has done. They are the Psalms of joy. They are the Psalms that generally are put to music in the church. They are the psalms we read generally in our worship services. If we're going to read a psalm publicly in worship, it's generally a praise psalm. The other big category of psalms are the lament psalms, and this is a lament psalm. The lament psalms are very different. The lament psalms are not psalms of joy. They are psalms of tears. They are psalms that are meant to express the tragedy of life and are crying out to God either from one person or from God's people together, calling out to God in a time of difficulty and hardship. They don't get written into songs that we generally sing. And you don't often find worship leaders standing and reading a lament psalm as part of our corporate worship because we kind of don't know what to do with lament psalms often. What's fascinating is that the way that most scholars categorize the book of Psalms, there's more lament Psalms there than praise Psalms. And I think it's almost as though the Holy Spirit knew as he inspired our Bibles that actually we'd need more laments than we would praises. That oftentimes in life there's more tears than there are times of joy. I'm sounding a little melancholy today, aren't I? But I'm trying to capture something, I think, of the reality of life. Psalms 42 and 43 that go together are a lament psalm. It's a psalm that comes out of pain, out of difficulty, out of hardship. We don't know the exact circumstance from which it comes, but we can see the traits of a lament psalm here that we're going to walk through. We're going to walk through these three stanzas, if you like, and then we're going to come back to that chorus that keeps repeating through. Before we do that, though, I want you to have a look at the beginning of Psalm 42, if you would, because there's a heading for this psalm that is very important. The heading for Psalm 42, and I'm using the NIV, by the way, in case you've got a different translation, but the NIV heading says, For the director of music, a masculine of the sons of Korah, 
Now, that tells us a few really interesting things. Number one, because this psalm is for the director of music, it was to be used in public worship. So this wasn't a private song. This was actually a song that God's people would sing together, which is a really interesting push against the way we often think of our corporate worship, isn't it? They were weeping together as God's people as they sung this song. Second thing I want you to notice is that it was written by the sons of Korah. They were one branch of the ancient tribe of Levi, and the Levites generally helped the priests in the worship of Israel, but the sons of Korah's job was to lead worship. So this was not only for public worship, it was written by the worship leaders for God's people. The most interesting little phrase here, though, is that funny word, a mascal. There's debate over what that means, but it's probably from a Hebrew verb that means to give insight or give instruction. So this is a teaching psalm written by worship leaders for all of God's people to sing together. In other words, it was designed for God's people together to learn together how to talk to God and how to pray when when times are rough and things aren't going well. And I really believe that as God's people today, we need to learn to lament. We need to learn how to talk to God, how to pray alone and together when life isn't going well. And that's what I want us to see here. So let's have a look. This first stanza is verses one to four. Have a look with me if you've got your Bible there. Psalm 42 verse one. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? If you've been part of the church scene for a couple of decades in New Zealand, these words may be very familiar to you. That you might start humming in your mind an old praise song. As the deer Pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. You know the song? I was going to lead it, but that may not be helpful. It may may cause you to lament, actually. It was a beautiful song that you may even still sing today, but I've been humming it, actually, as I've been driving up here and praying for this morning. It's a beautiful song about a, a, a worshiper's heart just so filled with a desire to connect with God. And it's, it was beautifully written. The problem was it was ripped out of the context of the psalm it came in. Because while verses 1 to 2 make it sound like this is a beautiful praise psalm of someone who really wants to connect deeply with their God, that's not the context at all. Look at what verses 3 and 4 say. My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. See, this is a a heart of a worshiper expressing their hunger or their desire for God but it's because God feels really far away. This is a heart expressing a desire, a thirst to be near God again like it used to be because at the moment, the psalmist feels very, very far from God. They feel in a desert experience. Whatever the tragedy is, whatever the trial they are facing, it's a time of such incredible difficulty, it doesn't feel like God's near at all. 
God feels very, very far away. And as the psalm begins, the first part of the psalm is about a person, a worshiper, who hungers for God because God feels distant. Have you ever experienced that? Maybe it's just me. You guys all look very pious and godly. But you know, there are times in life, as you face hardship and difficulty, it just feels like God's far away. And it feels like your prayers just bounce off the ceiling and come back down to you. And you feel incredibly alone. And you know, theologically, if you're well-grounded, that God isn't far away. He's right there. God is always faithful, as Grant just said. Yet it doesn't feel like that. And that's, I think, the beauty of the Lament Psalms. Because what the, what the Lament Psalms are doing, including this one, is they're saying it how it really feels. This is life sometimes. When you're facing difficulty, when you're in a trial, when you're facing redundancy, or your marriage is falling apart, or your teen's walked out the door and isn't coming home, or your finances are a mess, sometimes you cry out to God, and sometimes you try and do your best, and it feels like God's far away, and your prayers are unanswered, and nothing's going right, and you're crying day and night, doesn't it? And what this psalm is doing is giving voice to that. And saying we all feel like that at times. And the best thing we can do is actually tell God that that's how we feel. God, I hunger for you. I wish I felt connected to you. But right now, as I face this mess, you feel so very far away. For almost 20 years, my wife Rochelle suffered with a condition called fibromyalgia. It's like chronic fatigue with pain. And for 20 years, that was our life, really, together. And there were many, many days and nights filled with tears for us as we cried out to God that he would heal her and sort this and help us. And there were many times where it felt like God was distant. And through those times, the lament psalms became very real to me. In fact, one in particular, my favorite psalm now, is this one, Psalm 13. Psalm 13 is a lament psalm as well, but it begins this way. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? I love the brutal honesty of the lament psalms. I mean, and you could actually read those words. How dare he? This is a Psalm of David, by the way. How dare David talk to God like that? Because that's not even true, is it? Has God really forgotten David theologically? Has he? Of course not. Has, has God hidden his face from David? No. But is that how David feels? Yeah. And God, through his spirit, inspired David to write words that teach us to be honest with God. Right now, you may be going through incredible difficulty in your life. Do you know the greatest thing you can do with the pain you feel in your heart is bring it to God and tell him? You might be feeling incredibly upset about what's happened in your life. You might be feeling disappointed with God that he hasn't answered your prayer the way you want. You might even be feeling angry. Do you know what? 
God already knows how you feel. Doesn't he? If he's omniscient, if he's the all-knowing God, he knows how you feel. He is not going to be shocked if you voice to him your disappointment or your anger or your frustration. He already knows that's how you feel. I actually think the Lament Psalms are an invitation to come with our pain and bring it to God. That's what this psalmist did. That's what the, the sons of Korah do here. They hunger for a God who feels to them right now really distant. They also, in the second stanza, the second half of Psalm 42, they then question a God who feels or seems forgetful. They dare to actually raise some questions to God because it feels like God's forgotten them. Let me read verse 5, the chorus, which we're going to come back to, but it helps put the next verse in context. Why my soul, verse 5, why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Now verse 6, my soul is downcast within me. I love that. Verse 5, he's encouraging himself. Come on, soul, why are you downcast? In verse 6, while I'm downcast, sorry. That's just how I feel. Therefore, I will remember you, God. From the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazir, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, a song is with me, a prayer to God, the God of my life. Verse 9, but I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning? Why must I be oppressed by my enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? We haven't got time to walk through every single verse here, but the, the idea behind this, uh, this whole cluster of verses, this, this second stanza, is that it feels like God's forgotten him. His life is in turmoil. And he's crying out to God and asking, Why? Why do I feel like this? Why does it feel like you're so far away? There's this imagery that can be a little difficult to understand in verse, verses 6 and 7 there about the waters that come from the snow that mounts on the mountains and comes rushing down to the Jordan River through beautiful waterfalls. And you'd think the imagery is something really beautiful of lovely waterfalls cascading through the native bush of New Zealand kind of thing. But actually, I think the imagery, especially of verse 7, is being caught up in that waterfall like trying to surf down the hooker falls and coming off your surfboard and ending up in the rapids and being thrown head over foot over and over and over and you're trying to gasp and just get enough air to take a breath before you're sucked back down into the rapids again. And I think David is trying to, sorry, the sons of Korah here are trying to say that's how my life feels at the moment. Everything is going wild around me. I feel like I'm heading down the rapids. I, might, I feel like I'm throwing here, there, and everywhere, head over heels. I'm just trying to keep a breath and keep alive and get through this, this section of the river that I'm on. But it's down in verse 9 that he raises the question. And again, I love the, the symmetry here. I love the way he says in verse 9, I say to God, my rock... The sons of Korah still understand God's my rock. He's the faithful God. He's the one I can depend on. I understand that. But I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why? Because that's how it feels. I feel forgotten. I feel alone. And so I, I question, 
I raise my questions and I come to God with my questions and I say, why do I feel like this? Why does my life feel like this? Why has it turned out this way? Why has he or she made that decision they've made? Why, why can't we get enough business to keep, keep it afloat? Whatever it is. Why God? And they come with this brutal honesty and ask these questions. One scholar, Alec Mottier, writes this. Verse 5 implies, that's the chorus, it implies that with God as our hope, we have no need to be downcast. And then verse 6 chimes in, my soul is downcast. He writes, what a frank prayer. I know it's foolish to be down, but I am. And I love that final line. This sort of openness with God runs through the psalm. Honestly, the Lament Psalms are simply an invitation to get real. To get real with God, even to get real with ourselves. We've created, I think, a situation in the church where to have faith means we have a stiff upper lip. To have faith means we trust in God no matter what. To have faith means we never struggle when life's going wrong. And I think that's wrong. Sometimes I think having faith means to cling to God when we've got nothing else to do. Sometimes it's clinging to God like you're clinging on to a a little uh, blowing up tire as you go hurtling down, life feels like the hooker falls and all you can do is hang on desperately to God and cry out to him. And I think that is what faith often looks like. And I think we need to create a situation in the church where we can be much more real. Real with ourselves, real with each other, and real with the God who already knows what we're going through. The final stanza then of this song is actually found in what we now call Psalm 43. Verse one, vindicate me, my God. Plead my case, sorry, my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning and oppressed by the enemy? That's a repeat from earlier. Verse three, send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. This is a prayer. What you find in every lament psalm in the book of Psalms is it moves. It moves from lamenting, from raising the cry to God, God, this is how I feel, getting really brutally honest with God. But then every lament psalm moves from there. So lament psalms don't leave us wallowing in our pain. It invites us to get real with our pain and bring that to God. But then lament psalms bring us to the point where we're willing to pray where we recognize that this God we serve is indeed a faithful God, and so we can pray to him. And that's what you find in verse 1 and verse 3. The sons of Korah having talked, cried out to God because it feels like God is distant, it feels like God's forgotten. Having talked that through with God, they're now at the point where they can pray to God. God, this is what we need. This is what we're after. Would you step in? Would you heal? Would you provide? Would you bring home? Whatever that is. And then in verse four becomes a final step that again almost every lament psalm has, which is a vow. Then, 
when my prayer is answered, when that is fulfilled, then I will go to the altar of God. To God, my joy and my delight, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Saying, you know what? Because I've brought you my pain and, and, and cried out to you because it feels like you're distant, it feels like I'm forgotten, I've now come to the point where I can just, having brought you my pain, now I can bring you my prayer, and there's a day coming where I'm going to pick up my guitar again, my lyre, and I'm going to praise you. It's not yet, I don't feel like that yet, but the day is coming. And that's the sequence of a lament psalm. It begins with getting real and bringing our emotion and our hurts and our feelings and our anger to God to the point where we can then come and earnestly pray and bring what it is we need to him, trusting him as our God with the realization that God's going to come through because that's who he is. Maybe different to the way we expect, but there is a day coming where I will again pick up a guitar and I will join in the praises of God's people. That's a lament psalm. That's how this psalm works. What makes Psalms 42 and 43 unique, however, is that while they follow the same pattern through these stanzas of all of the other lament psalms, what makes these ones unique is this chorus, this amazing little chorus line that gets repeated again and again and again at the end of each of those stanzas. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. At the heart of this particular lament psalm is this beautiful chorus line that he comes back to three different times. And at the heart of this chorus is two very simple ideas. The first idea is the idea of hope. You notice that? Each time in the middle line, put your hope in God. We live in a world today that is desperate for hope. The hope that's needed when terrorism strikes, the hope that's needed when, when uh, life is really tough, the hope that's needed when the economy can crash, the hope that's needed when relationships fall apart. The problem is the world simply looks at hope as a wishful idea. It's, it's a wishful thinking kind of hope. When I preached this sermon in our church at the beginning of the year, the movie La La Land had just won some awards at the Golden Globes. And in her acceptance speech for the Best Actress Award, uh, Emma Stone said this about the movie. This is a film for dreamers. I think that hope and creativity are two of the most important things in the world, and that's what this movie is about. I think on one level, she's right. I think hope is one of the most important things in the world, and creativity. The problem is that what Emma Stone is describing as hope is just a wishful hope that maybe things will work out in the end. The Christian hope is that they will work out in the end. It's a certainty because of what Jesus has accomplished. And as we celebrated communion today, as we took bread and juice to remember what Jesus has done for us, there's this idea beneath communion. We do this until he comes. Because there's a hope in the Christian faith that one day we won't do communion anymore because we will gaze on his hands and his feet. And we will look into his face. And we will see a new heavens and a new earth 
and everything made right. And all of our prayers will then be answered ultimately. That's hope. And the sons of Korah here sing, put your hope in God. I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. It's a celebration that what we have in Jesus, what we have in God, is the ultimate hope. And if that was true for the sons of Korah, that is even more true for you and I because we are living on this side of the cross and this side of the empty tomb. And we can say even more than they, put your hope in God. There is a certainty in that all that God has promised and all that God has set out to do through Jesus is going to come to pass. That's the first key idea in this chorus. The second key idea that I want you to see is who the chorus is addressed to. Because almost every other part of this psalm and every other part of almost all the lament psalms are addressed to God. All of the, the, the psalms go in an upward direction. They are they're worship songs, they're prayers. But this chorus is not addressed to God. It doesn't go upward. Who's it addressed to? Himself. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why so disturbed within me? The chorus is addressed to himself. And the sons of Korah recognize that sometimes we need to talk to ourselves and remind ourselves that life is still worth living and there still is hope and God is still our rock even when life is turning to custard and he may feel far away and we may think he has forgotten. In fact, those are the times we need to remind ourselves, soul, put your hope in God. Back in 1964, well before I was born, I'd like to say, <laughs> Welsh pastor by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a very, very important book called Spiritual Depression. And in that book, he wrote these words. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. So what counselors call self-talk. And we self-talk all the time. And our big problem is that often we listen to the voices in our heads that take us down the wrong pathways of thinking. And what the... What Dr. Lloyd-Jones recognized is that many of us need to come to a much greater awareness of what we are unconsciously repeating to ourselves in our minds all the time. I love what he wrote next because it's actually based on the psalm. You have got to take yourself in hand. You have got to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you downcast? You've got to turn on yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, put your hope in God. I love that. Because that's what the sons of Korah are doing. It's not like they're denying their pain. 
It's not like they're just pushing their pain under the carpet, pretending it's not real. Let's just kind of keep on going and keep on trusting, even though we're falling apart on the inside. No, they're saying, no, bring that to God. Come and tell God, it feels like you're far away. It feels like you've forgotten me. This is how I'm feeling. I long to connect with you again. Bring all of that to him. And then cry out to him, pray to him, God, this is what I need you to do. This is the situation we're facing. This is what's in front of us. And we're just crying out to you and trusting in you that you would fix that. But then what the sons of Korah show us in this chorus, what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones reminds us is sometimes we need to take ourselves by the lapel and look in the mirror and say, wait a minute, there's still hope. While God is on the throne, while the tomb is empty, while Jesus is still coming, there's hope. And the big idea of this beautiful psalm is this. When God feels distant, preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. He is my Savior and he is my God. See, we think the gospel is for people who don't know Jesus yet. We think that the good news of Jesus is for people who haven't met him yet. And they need to understand that we're sinful and we're rebels and uh, we've turned away from God and the entire creation is cursed because of our rebellion. But Jesus has come. God has actually stepped into our existence by taking flesh on himself. And he has lived life and he has suffered here and he knows what it's like. He's experienced life in our shoes, but he's lived life perfectly in a way we could never do. And then he's died for our sins on the cross, risen again, offers us his life and his righteousness, offers to take our sin and the penalty for that on himself if we would simply acknowledge our sin and trust in him. And he offers us life and eternity with God, but he offers us that relationship now to enjoy with the Father and the promise of everything else that is to come, when all of creation is going to be renewed under his leadership and rulership as king of kings. That's the good news, but it's not only for people who don't know Jesus yet. It's for you and me today. Because often when we're in the midst of difficulty, it's when we've had the phone call from the doctor to say it's cancer, you need to come in on Monday. It's when we are standing and looking at the redundancy slip and the boss is saying, you should probably go home and talk to your spouse. It's when our teenager slams the door, carrying their luggage out to the car and saying, I'm not coming home. It's when we stand at the graveside with tears running down our faces and we say goodbye. Those are the seasons of life where we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. It might feel like God's distant. It might feel like he's forgotten. But he hasn't. And the way we know he hasn't is because of Jesus. He's the faithfulness of God personified. If God feels distant for you today, If you're singing the blues right now, may this psalm be a psalm of reassurance to you. Be real. Be open about it. 
bring it all to God, and then preach the gospel to yourself. He is our Savior, and He is our God. I want to end this morning, if I can, with a beautiful prayer from New York pastor Tim Keller. One of the many books that he's written is a uh, devotional on the Psalms. 365 different readings that he just gives a little portion of a psalm and then one paragraph of reflection and then a prayer. And I want to finish, if I can today, with Tim Keller's prayer based on Psalm 42. Lord, I praise you for not being just a remote, nebulous force. Thank you that you are a living, personal God who can be known. I need your presence and love to sometimes soften my hard heart, to sometimes strengthen my fainting heart, and to sometimes humble my proud heart. Lord, I need to learn how to preach to my own heart rather than just listening to its foolish or panicky chatter. Help me learn how to effectively say to my unruly inward being, put your hope in God. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.